Don't you bother to step on the scale, mister. I can tell you wait from right here. One, five, nine, right? And next week, gonna be one, four, three. And the week after that, we don't like to think about that, do we, mister? <laughs> Welcome to Now Playing's review of Thinner. This diet you're on, what is it? I've tried all the others. I might as well try this one. I don't think you'd like it, Henry. In fact, I don't think you'd like it at all. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. This is getting out of hand. Wrong. This has been out of hand. Hosted by Arnie. I want to find the old guy. Find him and tell him we don't deserve this. Stuart. You should have called me earlier, Billy. A lot earlier. And Jacob. They gotta bring a little fun with them. They bring disease, crime, and prostitution. What kind of fun is that? This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Gypsy curses. Who are you trying to convince me or yourself? Listener discretion is advised. Don't make me start, old man. Don't make me start! Today, we're discussing Stephen King's Thinner, starring Robert John Burke, Lucinda Jenny, Michael Constantine, Kari Wurr, and Joe Mantegna, directed by Tom Holland. What? Spider-Man? <laughs> no, the other Tom Holland. I don't know that one. Fright Night, Child's Play. Oh, okay. The Langoliers. Oof. Wait for it. <laughs> this is the now playing co-host who brings you the curse of the podcaster from a mid-sized town, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the white podcaster from town, Jacob. Is this part of the Stephen King retrospective? I thought this was Richard Bachman. We did Running Man. And let me tell you, if I could just speak a little bit to some feedback we get from our listeners, I don't know if any series has received more Why Did You Do It? The Children of the Corn, even though we just did another installment, people are like, enough with Children of the Corn, even though it's been years. And yet there has been no series more requested that we continue than Stephen King. When are you getting back to Stephen King? When do we get it? When do we get some more Stephen King? When are you back on Books and Nachos? Folks, we're back at King. Yeah, they mean, when do we get it? That's what they want to know. They, <laughs> they can't want this. Is this an actual book, like, more than 20 pages long? Yes, this is the fifth and final Richard Bachman novel. Novel, like, not a short story, because this is thin. <laughs> no, this was a full hardcover novel. Richard Bachman's first time having a hardcover novel, I might add. All his previous ones were direct to paperback. And just to refresh, Richard Bachman was Stephen King trying to prove he's more than a brand name. Writing stories, or in the past, he took stories that publishers looked at and said, this isn't good enough to print. And he gave it to somebody and said, no, print it anyway, and put it under this name, and they didn't sell for shit. This is the first time Stephen King wrote a book in the era of Stephen King writing and said, I'm going to sell it as a Richard Bachman novel. Do people know who Bachman was by this point, though? I read it when I was in my Stephen King read everything that was in print phase. I seem to remember that people did know at this point. Mm. 
Here's what happened is Thinner came out as Richard Bachman. And if you read the book, there's no way you can't think it's Stephen King. Stephen King has a very particular writing style, use of brand names, parenthetical notation, certain turns of phrase that he uses that if you read Thinner and you're a fan of King, and you probably would because Stephen King was out there going, read my friend's book, Richard Bachman. And when you read that book, there's a character inside of it that says, this is starting to sound like one of those Stephen King books. Yeah, I rolled my eyes at the Stephen King line. But what happened was people started to get hold of it and they were asking him in interviews, are you Richard Bachman? He's like, no, I'm not Richard Bachman, but I know who he is and we are friends. And they even took a photo of like the lawyer of King's publicist and put it on the book Mm -hmm. as this is a photo of Richard Bachman. And finally, a Stephen King fan got intrepid and went to some libraries and checked some registrations and found that a check was written to Stephen King for Thinner. He contacted Stephen King. He wasn't blackmailing or anything. He's just like, you're Richard Bachman. And King's like, okay, you figured it out. Come up to Maine. You and I are going to tell the Bangor press together. I'm going to give you some fame for figuring this out. Hey, everyone, I'm Richard Bachman. Yeah, it was by the time I got a hold of the novel, the cover is like a bloody handprint. I seem to remember Stephen King's name was on it with Richard Bachman. Yeah, it sold like 28,000 copies until Stephen King came out. And then all of a sudden it was on the front of every bookstore. Stephen King in huge letters as Richard Bachman in tiny letters. Then it sold over 300,000 copies in a couple months. It was a huge Stephen King novel. They reprinted those previous Bachman novels as the Bachman books. So you got four novels for one. Bachman wrote shorter stories than King. And King has since said he made a mistake. This is not a Bachman story. This is a Stephen King story that he decided to put Richard Bachman's name on, but he wasn't in the angry mood of Richard Bachman. And Richard Bachman had never really written Supernatural. He had written four stories. Two were about terrorist shooters, one in a school and one in a construction zone, and two were about futuristic races, the running man and the long walk. So this was out of left field for Richard Bachman. This was a King book through and through. Everyone saw through it and the jig was up. And this was the last of the Bachman books for 11 years until he'd do some publishing experiment I'll talk about someday. And I had a real flip on it. Jacob, you're implying that this movie's story is not substantial enough. My memory was that it was just a lot of a guy standing on a scale and watching the number go down and nothing was happening. You know, I wanted a monster. Where's the clown? Where is the dog? Where is the psychic girl or the vampire? I wanted something to fight and this novel didn't have that. And I just read it very quickly and I don't think I even understood what the ending meant. It left no impression on me. Coming back to it this week, I can honestly say that if you said you have to adapt one of King's novels into a film, this is the one I'd pick. It's the one I find that has the most fertile ground for telling a story. I'd pull a cubic, I'd change things, I'd twist things about the story to make it work, but I feel like there is so much that's interesting about the premise of this one. I wouldn't call it one of my favorite Kings, but it's like in the second tier. That is shocking. My only familiarity with Thinner is the movie we're about to discuss, but that is shocking to me that you're saying this is one of the best. This is the one to adapt because, 
Oh, boy. Was this an actual movie that came out in theaters? This wasn't just a straight-to-TV? No. I mean, Tom Holland, I mentioned him. I mean, noted horror director. Yeah, I know. Toby Hooper did real movies, and he had stuff come out on TV. I mean, we talked about that in this, this King series. So, wow. Blows my mind that this was a thing that people paid to go see. Okay. I was wondering if it had sat on a shelf, though. I mean, it had the feel of, like, maybe Orion made it, and then it just kind of molded for, like, three years. But I could find no evidence of that. No, that's actually not the case. It was filmed in 95, released in 96. I can talk about its production. But let me split the difference between you guys. I'll go into great detail on books and nachos. Eventually, I got some catch-up to do. I didn't even want to bring it up. (laughs) I'm going to split the difference. I do think the story of Thinner is a little bit thin, I don't know that it's the one I'd gravitate to, but it is an involving read. I didn't read it when it was new. I was still trying to read through it and Eyes of the Dragon and Carrie back then. I got to thinner, I think, in 94 or 95. It was before the movie, for sure. I think I had a real King Renaissance after the stand hit television. I was reading everything. I had the Stephen King book club, so I grabbed thinner. What's weird is I remembered everything. I remembered lines from it. I remembered every story beat. I did also reread Thinner this week, and I was just shocked at how well I remembered everything about it and how it is so accurately translated to screen, and yet it's like a bad Xerox copy or a mimograph or something. There's something lost in that translation. So I could see, Jacob, why you'd think the story would suck. But no, it is truly King writing at peak horror king. He was, you know, cocaine and Listerine and churning out a novel a week, but it's a solid book. And I think you have to remember the time it was written. In 1985, there was the whole Jane Fonda aerobics fitness craze, and the idea of losing weight quick was a fantasy. This book had a lot to say about America's fast food culture, revenge, and AIDS. I mean, AIDS was a new disease that if once you got it, a couple months later, you were wasted away to a skeleton. No one had the drugs. No one even really knew much about it. I feel like it really tapped into 1985 in a very primal way. But for an adult, for a teenager trying to get into a horror story, it just didn't have that. It was about a guy losing weight. Not scary to high school me. But now coming back to it, yeah, man, I was so wanting this movie to get it right because I had such clear ideas about what it could be. If you read the book, you see a lot of Stephen King himself in the character. The character used to be thin, drank a lot of beer, gained a lot of weight. The story's inception was Stephen King got up to around 235 pounds and his doctor said, you have to lose some weight and you have to lose it quick. And then Stephen King wished he could. And, you know, a lot of his stories are be careful what you wish for. And he kind of already touched this with that Quitter's Inc. short story. If you remember the one that was in Cat's Eye where the mobsters ran the program that you better quit smoking or you better lose weight or we'll take your wife's finger. Yeah, uh, still the best cat's eye. So this was a movie that Tom Holland had been trying to make since Child's Play. Remember, Child's Play came out in 88 and he was working with King and writing drafts of this. But you mentioned AIDS and weight loss. Studios didn't want to touch this because they were afraid it would be seen too much as an AIDS movie Mm -hmm. with somebody so gaunt and losing all the weight. And it's worth pointing out the screenwriter that Holland was working with, Michael McDowell, did die of AIDS. And so I think that's 
forgives the pun, but baked into the pie here is I think that that read is very clear. Eventually, after Langoliers was a success for ABC. Oof, that hurts. Those two words. A success. <laughs> okay. Langoliers, success. Two words that do not go together. I mean, with television, you don't know it's bad until after you've seen it. We'll get there eventually. I think it'll be in 2020, but I will make the argument it is the worst ABC miniseries of King. Worse than The Shining remake. Oh, I believe that, but it's not worse than Tommyknockers. No, it is. <laughs> We'll get there. Yeah, we can have that fight. But after Langoliers, then studios were ready to do this. Stephen King himself did an uncredited rewrite of the script. And then Tom Holland filmed this in 95 for a May 96 release. After some poor test screenings, it ended up an October 96 release. But it did not sit on a shelf. They were actively reshooting in 96. Mm-hmm. And I notice spelling entertainment is tagged onto this. I assume that's Aaron Spelling, the TV guy that made Charlie's Angels and Beverly Hills 90210 and all that love boat. Yeah, Tori's dad. So there was never any discussion about putting this on TV. At no no point was it going to be one of those miniseries. No, it was always going to be a hard R, and it was going to be expensive. The key with Thinner, one of the big problems with telling the story is you have to dramatize the weight loss. You have to show it on screen. You couldn't do it on a TV budget. There had been a breakthrough just a couple years earlier. The movie Death Becomes Her got a lot of acclaim. It had some CGI in it and some really interesting use of CGI. But Goldie Hawn in a fat suit is what everyone was talking about. It was the most convincing fat suit of all time. It really was a good-looking fat mm-hmm. suit. It yeah. only had a couple scenes. but That's true, yes. Hey, are you trying to say this is groundbreaking fat suit here? Because, oh boy, give me the clumps. When I read the novel, I thought you'd get an actor like Robert De Niro or Christian Bale, someone that would literally gain the weight and lose it. Stephen King suggested they hire John Candy, and John Candy actually lose the weight, and the quote was, it could save John's life. Oh, that's full of loaded yeah. thoughts that I could have, but I'll just leave it at all. But yes, I mean, I thought you could do it naturally or, you know, with some prosthetics, but not make it a fat suit. The thing about the fat suit is that to me telegraphs comedy. Yes. Or the very loose cartoonishness. When you put on the prosthetics, I don't think I'd ever seen the fat suit not used in that way. Death Becomes Her, Nutty Professor, Jimmy Glick or whatever that character Martin Short created. I just feel like when you put on a fat suit, you're trying to make people laugh. And Nutty Professor was the same year as this, so it wouldn't be necessarily a reference. They did bring in an Academy Award winning makeup guy to do the fat suit. He'd won for Mrs. Doubtfire, another bodysuit type thing, and Coppola's Dracula. Okay, well, we can talk about the makeup effects and how believable it is coming to this movie and having nothing in my mind. I've never seen a frame of this. I didn't know how they were going to do it or who was in it. I was hoping that I could believe that transformation because you're right. It is crucial that we see somebody go from... Well, in the book, he's not that large. I think he's, what, 240 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Here, they're going to push it to 300. But you really need to see a night and day transformation of the body. Well, let's talk about that transformation. Arnie, give us a plot. In a small town lives a large lawyer, almost 300 pounds large, Billy Halleck, played by Robert John Burke. You know, the fake RoboCop. Mm. Yeah, RoboCop 3, boo. Mm, Boy, that hurt when I saw I'm like, who's going to be the guy? Oh, (laughs) 
Billy has been trying to lose weight with his wife Heidi, played by Lucinda Jenny, putting Billy on one diet after another. But that hasn't stopped her affection for her husband, as shown one night where, after a dinner out, she starts to give him some roadhead. He enjoys it so much he doesn't notice the gypsy woman that's crossing the street. She's hit and killed by Billy's car. Being a big shot lawyer in that small town, Billy pays no consequences. His friend Judge Kerry Rossington, played by John Horton, and Police Chief Duncan Hopley, played by Daniel Von Bargen, conspire to be sure Billy is not found guilty. But while Billy's escaped the law, he cannot escape the gypsy's 106-year-old father, Tadzu Lemke, played by Michael Constantine. Lemke curses the three men. When he curses Billy, he says one word, thinner. Billy starts suddenly losing weight at an alarming rate. No matter what he eats, the pounds fall off. At first, Heidi fears it's cancer, but Dr. Mike Houston, played by Sam Freed, says Billy is cancer-free. Billy checks up on the judge, and the judge's wife tells Billy that his curse was lizard, and he started growing scales, so they sent him to the Mayo Clinic. The police chief's curse was leper, so his skin starts to fall off and he shoots himself. Billy confronts the gypsy and is told his death will be slowest, and he'll never remove the curse. But Billy responds by giving the gypsy the curse of the white man from town. The gypsies laugh, but the curse of the white man comes in the form of gangster Richie, the Hammer Janelli, played by Joe Montaigne. Richie uses poison, guns, and acid to terrorize the gypsy camp until, finally, Tadzu agrees to remove the curse. The curse is put into a strawberry pie. And Billy, now deathly thin, has to have someone eat it, and the curse will be transferred. But Tadzu implores Billy to eat the pie himself and to die with honor. Billy takes the pie home to his wife Heidi, as he believes she's having an affair with Dr. Houston. Heidi eats the pie and dies. But Billy then realizes the pie was also eaten by his beloved daughter Linda, played by Bethany Joy Lenz. With his daughter destined to die, Billy decides to kill himself by eating the pie but not before he shares a piece with Dr. Houston as credits roll. That plot summary could be almost a plot summary of the book. Yes, boy, it's tough because I know almost once I put it in, I can't say I was excited because I knew this movie wasn't celebrated. If this were some classic, somebody would be out there championing this film if it had admirable qualities. I knew that from the silence, I was going to see something that was dissatisfying. I saw this when it came out on video. I did not go to theaters for it. Nothing told me I should. As soon as it was on video, I rented it. All I remembered coming back, I didn't remember anybody in it. All I remembered coming back was a profound feeling of disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I got to say that when you get that opening shot of Billy in that fat suit, oh boy, I know I'm in. This is only 90 minutes long, but I'm in for a, a long, hard road here. It's like the first shot is the worst shot, though. Admittedly, it's going to be when he's at his fattest. But there are scenes in this movie that convince me. But the very first shot, I'm thinking, come on, Barbie, let's go party. Yes. You know, if you've seen the Aqua music video or around the same time, Duracell had the battery ads with the wind up plastic people. That's what he looks like. I'm going to give a pass on the makeup. It does look cartoonish. And it sets the tone for something more in a comedic vein, more like a Tales from the Crypt than it does the movie I had in my head. But I am not going to ding the makeup. It is good enough for me to buy into where they're going, at least the fat stuff. Once he has to become gaunt, their ideas of that are 
I guess just to put lines running down his face, but he never looks thin to me. He never got below 140. He started at 160. He did lose 20 pounds for the role. That's as De Niro as you're going to get from Robert John Burke. My problem with the fat suit here at the beginning, in addition to the fact that only a couple portions of his mouth move and he has chin lines like a marionette, but I don't know how much the makeup designer actually studied the obese because he is just misshapen. He looks like Tweedledum. Only his waist and his ass and his neck and face are fat, but yet his arms and his chest and his legs are all tiny. Yeah, when you get a shot of him without a shirt, he's got no man boobs. That is a weird body shape there. Yeah, it's cartoonish. The physicality of the fat suit, but it's also the way that Burke plays it. He is always grinning. He's always like, doh? This is supposed to be a very successful lawyer defending mobsters. I would have played it much more straight. I would have played to the drama of the situations. Instead, all the choices being made early on tell me this is going to be campy and silly and don't expect too much. And you're telling me that's not in the book because I'm watching this. Yes, this silly fat suit. I'm thinking of the nutty professor. And then I'm going to go defend the Italian mobster in court. This isn't real life. Yes, they have a real problem or a disinterest in making any of this actually reflect American life, which is the crux of it. For me, when King is at his best, it's because he's speaking to the way America is. I mean, he is, like Poe, defining the ills of American life and consumerism. And if you take that away, you're left with something very hollow. I think you got a couple of things going on here. First of all, just across the board, I'll just lay my hand on the table. This is some bad acting from everyone involved. When your best actor is Stephen King. <laughs> yes! Yes! Person. I am not playing. He <laughs> no, is the I agree. most seasoned performer <laughs> in this entire cast. Stephen King came to play in this movie for once. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he put the moss away. He didn't do any of that shit he did in Creepshow. He is doing better work than anybody here. Joe Montaigne. I'm going to hold him out away from the rest. He's just being Joe Montaigne in this. But every other person feels like they just came off the cast of Days of Our Lives. And like Tom Holland was saying, hey, you know what you did on Days of Our Lives? Go bigger. So the acting across the board is bad. So why Robert John Burke has decided to be smiling, I don't know. Is he trying to be the jolly fat man? I remember reading interviews with Al Roker when he got his gastric bypass and he started losing weight. And people said, don't lose too much weight because there's the stereotype of the jolly fat man. And if you become thin, you might not be so fun. So maybe Robert John Burke was trying to smile in that way. Burke also said... He had real trouble with the makeup because he couldn't act in it. And he had to go big for anything to show. Can he act without makeup? <laughs> because nothing in this film tells me he can act. I saw Robocop 3 and all right, you could have blamed the metal for that one. Maybe you're just not a very good actor. And I'm willing to be wrong on that. Maybe if I saw his Shakespeare, I'd be blown away. <laughs> But I really think the most crucial mistake this movie does in casting him as the lead. Yeah, because I was like, who? I knew I knew the name. And then I saw the back of the DVD. This has not gotten a Blu-ray release, but I got the DVD here with the commentary and everything. And you know what? He actually was good. He played a priest 
on Dennis Leary's TV series Rescue Me, and he was really good in that role. Okay, yeah, but the cast of that series was very good. He was a oh. recurring character. He oh, was. Oh, he was the priest. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So he did become good in something. All right, then I stand corrected. Yeah, but here he looks like he would be a comedic actor to me. He kind of looks like a doofus. And again, Italian mobsters and gypsy curses. This should be funny, right? It's because it's directed this way, too. I mean, again, he's going into court, and at the same time, it's more about how he's cheating on his diet. He's always eating bags of Doritos while his wife is gently scolding him at home, and he's lying to her about what he claims he weighed in at and what he actually is. I love her giant computer where she's typing in his weight. That is just a glorious thing. Like, in 1996, that- That Excel 2.0 she's using? Yeah, that looks like it's a Tandy TRS-80, which is actually something dry. In thinner, I like had this flatter. Oh my god, the TRS 80 that looks like she's using one to enter his weight in Excel. But this film does one thing better than the book. No, okay, oh, I can't wait to hear this. I'm curious. The book has a really ham fisted way of inserting Richie Janelli early on and having the character think about Janelli, but he never interacts with Janelli. They have to foreshadow Janelli just by this guy reminiscing about when he had a case. And in this movie, opening up with him getting Janelli off for something helps establish that character better than King did in the book. It shows that King is not one for rewrites. He does not like to go back to his books and do a lot of rewriting where he could have inserted the character and made that feel more natural. Reading this book the second time, knowing Janelli was going to be a big part, it was clearly obvious how poorly he was inserted in the beginning. The movie improves that by having that court case here. But yes, the fact that he's constantly eating the Doritos and everything, it feels like a comedy. But our director, Tom Holland, what is Fright Night? A horror comedy. What is Child's Play? horror comedy. You didn't bring in Toby Hooper. You didn't bring in a serious horror director. You brought in someone who's always had a lighter edge. Mm, That first child's plays in horror comedy, I feel like that came later. Well, they got more comedic, but I think there was always a campiness to a doll attacking people. I mean, yes, that was the least silly in the series, but Arnie's point is very valid. What I wanted was a stark tone. Like I said, I knew five minutes into this, I need to let go of my conception. I didn't have any conceptions, and I wish I could let go of what this movie is. It's so brightly lit. Nothing says scary. Throughout the film, I'm never scared. I'm never horrified. This doesn't even seem like the real plight of an obese man. No, it definitely feels like if it's horror, it is like Tales from the Crypt, where it's kind of giggle-inducing, and it's in a comic book way. Yeah, it never terrifies the way it could. You know what I envision is if this movie were remade today, and you actually took the good CGI effects where you can't really tell, and you use that to amplify the true body horror of both morbid obesity and then losing that weight down to emaciation, following that journey could truly be horrifying. And he could be as horrifying at this early start, just uncomfortableness and making it a squirm-inducing experience 
and taking that down and amplifying it up the more he loses weight. You could really go a long way with this with good effects and a good actor. Here you have decent effects for the time and a piss poor actor. The worst scene is the shower scene where he's like, he can barely touch his suit. He's like rubbing his hand over his suit like Winnie the Pooh with some honey. Just mmm is all he's doing. No, it's so ham-fisted. At one point, we know it sucks being fat because he's really out of breath after going up the stairs. And I'm like, he's really huffing and puffing and wants to make that obvious here. I think a worse makeup job, though, is with these gypsies. I mean, in the book. Is this in the book? Is it gypsy curse? there? Yes. yes. And it kicks off that way. We never know what happened until it's told to us through backstory. The first thing that we know is that he's sitting there contemplating this scary husky skeletal gypsy coming up with cancer on his nose and saying thinner to him. It's established for the very first page what the curse is. I thought about that a lot. For the movie, it makes sense to tell a linear plot. Oh, absolutely. But for the book, it works so well as a hook that you start And he's lost three pounds. That's how the book begins. But then he can have flashbacks to what happened. I just don't think that would work as well for the movie. No, no, I I have no problems with the structure here is just first how bad the tone is here. And then a gypsy curse. Aren't we done with it? Even in 96, aren't we done with gypsies? I mean, Sam Raimi did that and dragged me to hell. That was a wink, wink, nod, nod. Isn't this silly gypsy curses? This though, I mean, Gina, the slingshot wielding gypsy come on this is in the book <laughs> i saw kari were in the opening credits and i got confused with kari russell and i'm like oh she must play the daughter and then i was like that's not carrie russell oh wait kari were she's playing a gypsy and she must have gotten a bikini wax for that pull up the skirt scene yeah, we've talked about her already, the star of Hellraiser, Deader. Uh-huh. And if you remember our Hitcher review, we mentioned her briefly. She's the star of the Hitcher 2 ICU. And I don't want to see Kari Ware. Yeah, she was a flash in the pan that, again, all the casting choices here are really unfortunate. We really needed to have, like, you know, Rob Zombie live this life. If we believed in the naturalism of just, let's call them not gypsies, but carnies. Yes, there you go. If this were just a carnival that it's set up in town and you made it seedy and the tattooed whatever and all of that and maybe there is a fat person or a thin person in the freak show or something if you set up who they were going to become in that way i think there is a way of making this unsettling but it is not done that way in this movie. it is not done with a slingshot and i think that's only set up for one scene later well and it's straight out of the book the slingshot demonstration of the gypsy. I don't know. Maybe it's something better in the book, but it seems like a bad idea. But of all the gypsies, Kari Wurr is the best of them because you know what? In this early scene, we've got Billy talking to one of his lawyer friends who's like, if you give her a quarter, she'll probably show you her panties. And she does this like sexy dance, showing a bit of cleavage and pulling up and showing her panties and then flips him off. It's both funny and a bit woman powery in a Spice Girls kind of way that I know what you're all about and I'm not going to give this to you. Don't try to tie feminism into this. <laughs> yeah. And it makes me want her. But by the end of the movie, she's the one I hate the most. She lives. I'm screaming, put acid on that face. She is the character who moved me. <laughs> He's okay. <laughs> 
One way of looking at this story is that of the haves and the have-nots. We have lawyers that have lots of the material excess of the 80s that can have whatever they want and they overindulge and that's why he's obese. And then enrolling into town are people that have nothing, that literally do not have a place to stay. They're booted out because they don't have a patent to be operating in downtown Fairview. That's a clash that you could explore. This movie is not interested in exploring. And as for gypsies, the only thing that I could think of is when this movie came out, I'm like, gypsies that's such an old-fashioned thing i didn't think there still were gypsies but then i went to paris yeah and all the people in paris knew i was a tourist and were like watch out for those gypsies those gypsies are gonna get you yeah there's also a lot of racism behind it yeah yeah i I felt bad for them they felt like marginalized people well then i went to the eiffel tower where the gypsies pull all their scams and several tried to scam me out of a lot of money and so no they were there to cheat you out of money and the parisians hated them there's people trying to sell their mixtape at man's chinese theater that's everywhere it's not just the gypsies again I, i feel like this is culturally insensitive. No, the gypsies scam you, though. They have you sign something saying it's a petition, and then they claim it's a contract, and you must pay them, or they will call the police. I mean, it's not, here's a mixtape, give me money, and I give you a mixtape. It's not just a gypsy thing, though. Yeah, and I mean, we have a verb for this, right? I got gypped. I mean, that we it is part of the lexicon that we understand that this entire race of people are just thieves and horrible, and so who cares what happens to them? We actually have have the, the, the judge, before any accident has happened, make that declaration. They're dirty. They'll give you a disease. We see the bias built into it. It's done very cartoonishly, but they have set up the idea that these people are, are not to be considered human. And so when one of them steps out in front of a car that just happens to be driven by our main character, Billy, as he's receiving head, that is going to be the inciting incident for everything that happened. And we're supposed to take this seriously. Is that the tone? Because I am cracking up. It's funny that, again, I just keep thinking of the nutty professor with this awful fat suit while he's getting head hitting this woman. Oh, boy. Billy must be John Holmes times two, the way that head is bobbing for feet. Oh, her head is coming up so high. Feet. (laughs) I mean, we're talking, it's like up to his chin, down to his crotch. Up to his chin, down to his crotch. (laughs) Yeah, it's got to get around his stomach. I'm just trying to, I don't want to picture the anatomy, but I'm trying to figure out how this is actually working. There has to be some reason Heidi's with him, right? I mean, so there it is. (laughs) And yet, this is something they added for the movie was her infidelity yes that is a terrible ad because if she is cheating on him and all this and admittedly it's never confirmed but it's highly alluded to that she's cheating on him if she's cheating on him usually the cheating spouse isn't so amorous as to give some roadhead just spontaneously yeah this it was in the book that she for reasons unknown, did this. Why I thought it was interesting is it becomes a wedge in the marriage. That he is angry that he had to pay for this by getting gypsy cursed. And because the gypsies didn't know that she was there, 
She's not blamed. Nobody comes up to her. and It's really misogynistic in my mind. And honestly, that's kind of a trait of Bachman. It sounds like, though, some of my concerns are addressed because I'm like, shouldn't there be more marital conflict? Because, yeah, she was involved, but she does get off scot-free while he gets this curse. So, okay, maybe the book is better. Yeah, I mean, I think in great works of literature about revenge, I mean, you can always see where does justice lie? I mean, here is an incident where everyone is culpable. No one is completely innocent, including the gypsy. She didn't use a crosswalk. She didn't pay attention to what she was doing. Is it her fault? I'm not going to say that, but I do feel she bears some responsibility. They were in the store to rob. I mean, they were pickpocketing and thieving from the store. They were not there on noble purposes. And yeah, she is jaywalking. When he hits her, though, his (laughs) face is cartoonish. And then if you have blood on your windshield... You turn on the wipers. <laughs> Isn't that destroying evidence? Yeah, you stop the car, wait for the cops to show up. And I don't know if you guys noticed this. I didn't tell the commentary. The wipers smear the blood into a clown face because that's supposed to reference it. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and when you see the wiper go and the wiper comes back, it's a clown. Wiper goes, wiper comes back, it's a clown. Freeze frame it, you'll see it. I did not notice that. Well, it's clownish. I don't know if it's penny-wise, <laughs> but I definitely feel like at this point, I know it is like a comedy. Now, can I appreciate taking what I saw as fertile ground to satirize American culture and litigious culture and fitness culture? And can I just appreciate the story now as bumbling oaf? This guy's Dan Aykroyd, and we're in some sequel to Nothing But Trouble. Ooh, I don't want to do that. Oh, my God. I I knew you were going to go to Nothing But Trouble, and that is the worst. That is worse than this movie. Yeah, you're probably right. I don't know where to go. I guess what I'm really saying is I don't like the direction we're headed in, but I at least can recognize that it's going to be something different. To put aside my feelings of the book. It's not what you want. You're recognizing that, at least. And the makeup for the gypsy is not that good either, because we jump to the funeral. I don't know why he'd go to the funeral of a gypsy who he hit with the car. I don't think he'd be welcome. Why would they bury her in town? Don't they have their own place? They travel a lot. No, they don't have their own place. They travel a lot. Well, yeah, cremate her then so you could carry her around. Why would you bury her in a random town? But we get this Tadzu Lemke who's supposed to be the father of this old woman. I think for this movie, they should have made it the husband of the old woman and not kept to the book so much, because in the book, he's 107 years old. And here, he looks old, but he doesn't look old enough to be the father of that old woman. Oh, I thought they were trying to tell us there was, like, magic involved with his aging. And the book, again, like I said, because I'm intrigued by the book is not to say that I want to see it brought faithfully to the screen. I think we need to explore this character. They try to have their monster with Tadzu. They realized that there really wasn't a soul monster. In fact, that's kind of the point, is that everyone's culpable and in a litigious society, who's the bad guy? But Yes, because he's lived forever and they go through and see that he's for, you know, 1940s, 1930s, he's always looked the same in all the photos and he's always aged, but he never dies. They're trying to make him mythic. And I don't know that that's the most important thing to emphasize, but it at least allows you to build into it, you know, Pennywise or whatever that bald Dracula vampire was from Salem's Lot. Marlowe. But just... To 
to have a villain, to have a specific antagonist, because you have to give him a way out, right? If he is just wasting down to nothing, if he has AIDS and there's no cure or anything, there's no story there. It's just watching a man die slowly. It's a snuff film. You got to give him hope. You've got to give him a way out. And the book goes through some of the same motions as the movie. He's going to go see a doctor. Is it cancer? The doctor is going to say, no, you're cancer free. He's going to go have a test where he has to stay at a hospital for a few days. Here's my question about having a, a villain. We'll see this gypsy go up and go thinner after what? There's a pre-trial to see if Billy is guilty of manslaughter or murder and I guess the gypsies are upset because they felt like this was all rigged. I just never got that feeling. It's actually very hard to convict someone of murder in a car accident. And it seems like there's really no witnesses. I felt like, yeah, maybe they were pushing those gypsies to the side because they're like, oh, you're just coming through our town. But I didn't feel like it was some big conspiracy where all these men had to be cursed. I felt like it was in a creep show way. If this were a half hour segment, they characterize them in a way that feels like, yeah, these guys are bad and they're going to get what's coming to them. Them. This is going to be some kind of old world justice. If the courthouse can't give it to them, then they'll do it the old school way. I buy that. That's necessary. I do think they miss a step. I think that we needed to experience the weight loss as joy. And they don't really do that in the book either. But I think we needed to think... For some people, this would be an amazing fantasy of, Oh my God, I'm losing weight and I can still eat all the potato chips and all of that. He's eating 12,000 calories a day. Athlete, The Rock doesn't even need that many calories a day. It's, that is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I feel like studying his consumption and how that speaks to his character, there's just character work that could be done here. And this movie could, rather than racing to tell a horror story about an evil gypsy in a bad fright wig, they could take a look a little bit more at how people live their lives here in America. And like I said, it's satirical. We can make the monster ourselves, and it would be more interesting. I honestly think this story is more relevant now than it ever has been when you have, you know, Michelle Obama, when she was first lady, leading the initiative to try to improve health and weight management for Americans. It's been a problem since the 80s, as you mentioned. It became a big thing in the 70s, 80s, all of that. And even the 60s had quite a bit of it. But every year it seems to be geometrically larger, no pun intended. So yes, this is a relevant story. But where I was going is they go through these beats and he's just fighting a disease. They're trying to diagnose him, and all we have is somebody going through the motions, and it isn't horrific yet. He's just becoming normal weight. He was so overweight here, starting at 300 pounds, that when he loses half his body mass, he looks like a normal guy. It's the brief time when they don't have to put makeup on him. They should. He should have some sagging skin if he lost that much weight that fast, but... It's not horrifying, but there's also not a story there. And this movie, they move pretty quickly through the beats, but man, does it drag at the beginning. Again, I don't think they spend enough time, and I think the template could be something like Cronenberg's The Fly, where a large part of that was Jeff Goldblum. Like I said, at first, I've got super strength. I feel powerful. This is great. I'm better. And then, oh, my fingernails are falling off. I mean, I feel like I wanted to follow that journey step by step, and they just gloss it over because they're trying to play to teenagers 
teenagers wanting a horror movie for Halloween. Yeah, I kept waiting for the crux of this film to kick in. Like, oh, he's going to go to this clinic and maybe that's going to... Nope, he's just going to leave the clinic and they're not going to find any... Like, what does all this mean? You got the judge, he's turning into a lizard and we're just going from scene to scene to scene and this is a very trite... Yeah, kids around the campfire trying to tell a scary story and making it up on the spot. If there's a theme in this one, I don't feel like they ever get to it. Yeah, I don't feel like people believe the problems and the ills of our day-to-day are gypsies. And that's ultimately where this movie resides. It's where it decides to go for Act 2 is we've just got to go find that gypsy man and ask him to remove the curse because, well, look at what he's done to the other ones. Who get it much worse. I gotta say, I'd much rather waste away than grow lizard scale. Yeah, that guy... They mention, I guess, that he's dead, right? They kind of make an aside that he died from being a lizard. And the wife is screaming so much, I can't really understand what she's saying. But I get from her performance that they've at least, you know, maybe they put him in a zoo. I don't know. Maybe he's <laughs> in a tank, a rainforest cafe. I don't know. Maybe that's why gypsies have these sideshows, is they've created them through <laughs> curses. But that wife is the single worst performance when she is laughing hysterically quote unquote at the end my jaw is slackened that this somehow made it past auditions and into a final cut (laughs) and they when they were doing reshoots they didn't reshoot the whole goddamn scene with a better actress I mean, all these curses are maybe the worst curses to have to act with with her. But all these curses besides thinner, like, okay, we see a fat guy and you're going to get monkey paw story. You're going to get what you want. It's going to be awful. But the judge, what does he have to do with lizards? What is the cop who's got boils on his face? What was his curse? Like, they should be cursing people with what they want most. Oh, you're a judge. You want justice? Okay, justice. And then, like, some weird ironic thing happens to him and he gets killed because of, of some weird crime he did in the past. To turn into a lizard and get boils on your face that doesn't feel the same as what's happening with billy in the book they do clarify at least with the guy that's gonna kill himself it is uh related to teenage acne that he's just covered in so many pimples as a teenager he had breakouts and it was a time of insecurity and so he built this wealthy life to make himself feel better as an adult and then he was becoming this insecure teenager Yet again. Yeah, here, it's the best makeup effects in the movie. It's so much better than when we have the dream sequence with Mr. Lizard Skin, who looks like a rock golem. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't come up with something different than a lizard. I mean, maybe that made sense in the era where people wear Izod shirts. You know, that was an 80s thing. But uh, yeah, alligators, crocodiles, not in my mind. Not necessarily appropriate. Snake more than alligator, I think. You know, you're a snake. That's yes. an insult. Mm-hmm. But that is where I really did think Tales from the Crypt. When the judge rolls up in the car looking like he's made of cracked mud and driving wildly, I just needed the Crypt Keeper to pop up. (laughs) I guess he was judged, right? (laughs) Yes. Could have ended right there and we would have done, but it was just a dream sequence and we must keep going for another hour and it's too bad. I'm not hating this movie. I'm just hearing it pitched wrong. It's just like, wow, everything here just doesn't sound right, doesn't look right. It's just off. And again, I'm blaming a lot of the performances for it, but when every performance is bad, I do turn to the director at that point and say, either through your casting or through your directing, probably both, you fucked this up. Now, I do feel a little bit bad for Tom Holland during this film. During filming, he was struck with Bell's palsy, which if you're familiar with it, it's a virus. It paralyzed half his face. No, my. It can be rectified 
with steroids if administered quickly. The producers wouldn't let him leave to go to a hospital. Wow. They insisted he keep shooting. He didn't get to a hospital for 36 hours later. It took him a year and a half to recover from that. And this was his last film for 14 years. He would not direct again until 2017. He wouldn't even be involved in any major films until 2010 when he showed up as a cameo in Hatchet 2. I'm not sure that's all Bell's palsy. It might also be Langoliers, Arnie, but... And this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is unfortunate to know that, yes, yeah, someone was in need of medical attention. It's kind of like the Carolian thing in Poltergeist 3. You really want Heather O'Rourke to get medical attention when she's running around because you know the actress is literally dying. This is a little less extreme than that, but... But it must be hard to perform for a director whose half his face is paralyzed. Yeah, you're dressed up in the makeup and he looks worse. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe his curse was wooden performance. Yeah, he was cursed, all right. And again, it's not with a bad story. I like this story. I think he chose to sell something that was lighter, campier, sillier, and so that's where they're going with this. I really hate the subplot that the wife and the doctor are conspiring to throw him in the clinic, and it was kind of in the book, but here it's almost like it's their plot so they can be together. And that makes, again, no sense for the roadhead. But you know what I like about this movie? It's inferred. You get it through Billy's paranoia. You see them talking together and you see why he thinks they're having an affair. But it's never confirmed. He could all be in his head. It's one of the few subtle things in this movie is that it could all be in his head. And at the end, he could murder his wife and his doctor for no reason. That's fine. Again, this is played out like a 12-year-old writing a monkey paw story. Someone could have taken that idea and created some ambiguity and have that be a character thing, that that paranoia, that it's so weird that there's this whole subplot about, is my wife cheating on me when I'm watching a movie about a guy, I guess, losing weight? And I thought that was the problem. And I don't know, maybe if somehow the infidelity was tied into the weight loss. Yeah, if she was cheating on him because he gained weight and wasn't the man she married anymore and wasn't attracted to him that's different and then you could even have the roadhead be something that she's guilted into and like fine i'm gonna get it over with just to shut you up but i'm not turned on by you i'm gonna blow you because i'm just not gonna have you fuck me something like that but here the first hour of this film is pretty painful honestly i just found myself really not enjoying it but then the stupidest line portends the best turn in this movie when he says the curse of the white man from town which is one of those stephen king lines you know if you read him there are certain things he writes that i see what he was thinking when he wrote it but yet when i read it and when i see an actor say it it comes off a little stupid and i think the curse of the white man from town is one of those lines that comes off stupid when said out loud but when he does that and Joe Mantegna steps into the film, he brings an energy and a fun and a fuck it all attitude that gives this film an electric spark. I I cannot go there. It is such a bizarre turn. First, Richie, Joe Montani's character, I thought, you know, at the opening scene in the courthouse, and he's like, oh, you got me off. I'm always going to have your back. I thought he was like the head of the mob. I'm guessing he's like a low-level henchman because he's coming out to do all the work personally, and it's just him. I'm like, where's the rest of the mafia? Why is it just Joe? 
Well, he does it as a personal favor, and he does hire some random kid that's actually the director's kid in the, in this cast to kind of help him out. And Yeah, he gets a chicken stuffed in his mouth. This last half hour, for me, is the worst part. I'm the opposite of you, Arnie. Yeah, I don't understand where this movie goes. For the most part, I was with the movie, and then what should be fun, I agree. The idea that he's going to fight back with his legalese and his... Sicilia. I mean, what you have is the old world Romanians versus the old world Italians. This could be like a fun okay corral. It ultimately speaks to the idea of revenge is not a success for anyone. That everyone is going to pay here is a classic way of depicting revenge. I mean, Count of Monte Cristo kind of conspiring. It should be all at war. We should see for the next half hour, I go after your family, y'all go after your daughter, tit for tat. But it's just Richie getting a gun UPS to him. Like, he doesn't even bring the guns himself. It's shipped to him, and then it's just, yeah, him taking on the entire Gypsy family. I still like the performance he's giving. It suddenly becomes fun. It's an actor who realizes what movie he's in. And even if he's performing badly, he's performing badly in a fun way as compared to everyone else who's trying to be so serious and dramatic and not really pulling it off, especially Burke at this point in the movie where he's supposed to be emaciated and they have him pull up his shirt at one point and they like cut away and it's somebody else entirely showing the rib cage. You can add as many layers as you want to a human but there's only so many you can take away and yet if i was invested in the drama and the horror of losing this weight i wouldn't have had a problem with that cutaway to someone else's body it's just that this whole thing has been so silly thus far it's just another silly bad trick they try to pull on me Kari were like literally blowing a hole in his yes. palm. Very bizarre. Like I, I'm like, is there a Jesus metaphor here? Like Jesus had his nails through his palm. Like what am I missing here? I still kind of like that effect. Kari were first of all, one of the funniest scenes in the movie is where she's holding a slingshot and chasing him yes. through a carnival, screaming like a mad woman. It's just so, I feel bad for Kari Wurr, and I thought I'd never say that. Yeah, they wouldn't go that far, but it, it was funny that they set her up that she's supposed to be a marksman. Like, she's literally standing three feet away from a target and using her slingshot to hit the bullseye, and we're supposed to be impressed with that. But when she gets kidnapped, oh man, she has been so nasty. This film again, I started off like, I think he should leave his wife for her. She's really attractive and she looks fun. At the end, when she's kidnapped and Joe Mantegna has some vat of acid that he puts on her head, I'm like, spill it, spill it, scar her, scar her. I wanted her punished for being so nasty. So Joe Mantegna and Kari were. Best performances in the film. I enjoyed both of them. One, I love to hate. The other, I love to watch do bad things. I'm hating every scene here. Like, when yeah. he sets up the husband to, like, be killed, he pins a note on them, like, from Die Hard and sends him down the hill so that the family of gypsies mistake him for their attacker and shoot him dead. Oh, man, when Kari Ware finds out her husband was killed. Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious. Like, that acting, man. Yeah, and the fact that, like, he leaves her with the acid on her forehead and she's just laying there. Like, lift it off. Like, I mean, this, yes. all of this is just announcing, like, they're not even trying anymore. Like, I, it does feel like a director that's got a medical problem and he's just not on set <laughs> to attend to his actors. The end is pretty quick, though. When it came, I thought there should be even more than putting a mason jar of acid on Kari Wurr's forehead all of a sudden, Robert Burke is sitting on a bench 
And here comes Tatsu with a pie. Is this in the book? It is. He's yeah. going to put his curse in a strawberry pie. I kind of love it because, like, it is, like, how do you squash a beef at the end? Like, breaking bread and food. Like, then it gets back to food. You know, we sat down with the Indians. Like, I just feel like there is something American about that and something kind of old world Italian. And this is a guy whose problem was he ate too much. Now he has to have somebody else eat so that he can gain weight and become normal again. There's some irony to it. No, it's very obvious irony. Yes, we're going to put your curse into food because in life, food was your curse. And that's why you were so fat. For me, it worked very much in the book. And again, it was kind of a stunner that, you know, he had been suddenly blaming his wife so much that he was willing to go home and feed it to her. When I read it as a kid, it went right over my head. I didn't even understand that the character had done that. I read it in my 20s, so I very much knew. And to be honest, my entire life, it's been, what, 20-some years since I read it, I've never looked at a strawberry pie the same way again since reading this book. And yeah, I remembered him feeding it to the wife. I couldn't remember if the wife did more, but no, it was... This is where I see King thinking it's a Bachman book. It's the misogyny and the dour ending, and the movie was going to end just like the book. He was going to go home, give the wife the pie, find the wife's body, wake up the next morning, find the daughter had eaten it, and find the daughter's emaciated body. That's what makes no sense, is that in the same amount of time that the wife ate the pie, she turns into a skeleton. No, 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 no. The the wife ate the pie the night before. The daughter says she just came home that morning and had a piece. No, she had a piece with her mom and they made (laughs) up. No, that's in the book. In the movie, she ate it for breakfast. So she's going to die. Okay. All right, that explains it. That at least explains the discrepancy, because you're right. I read the book and watched the movie so closely together, they're blurring in my mind when they shouldn't. But, yes. I like the original ending first, in which that the man has lost everything and being able to gain the weight back. But he then eats the pie himself to commit suicide because he loves his daughter. His daughter is successfully worked into the book. There are scenes where she's worried about him losing weight. There are scenes where she's having problems at school because of her father killing a gypsy. She is a character in the book, and it is clearly established Billy cares only about really one thing, and that's his daughter. So that he loses it to save his life is a monkey's paw moment. But here in the movie, it's just this bratty brunette that comes in and out of a few scenes. And when at the end she dies, you care because she's young, but the relationship between them has not been well established. For a second, I thought this movie was going to go cannibal. We see this scene where Billy finds his wife dead in bed and he's like licking her lips. I'm like, is he going to start eating her? And then is he going to go after the daughter? Like, are they going to really go crazy at the end here? It doesn't go there. It's just... Let's give pie to everyone because my daughter's going to die now, so I got to kill myself. I don't even feel like it's that. I feel like Burke is really playing it like he's auditioning to get the TV role in the Shining remake. Like, he wants to be Steven Webber. Oh, like, no. He's trying to play to that. Like, he wants to be Jack Nicholson in The Shining, but he's coming closer to Steven Webber in The Shining. It's just played wrong. This should be a tragedy. This shouldn't be, come inside and let me feed you some strawberry pie. That's way wrong. That's a Tales from the Crypt ending. That isn't what the book was about. No, but they ended up having to do a reshoot because audiences hated seeing the daughter's desiccated corpse. What is it with people? What don't you understand about horror? You need to be horrified. It's supposed to hurt. 
The studio wanted to change it so that just the wife died and it was kind of a happy ending. Tom Holland wouldn't do that, but they agreed to the compromise of the daughter's going to die, but we just don't see her dead. But then more test audiences were like, what about the doctor? Why doesn't he die? So they added another shot. Yeah, that felt forced. Again, the whole idea that she was having an affair was not the point. She wasn't an evil, betraying wife that deserved to die. And that's just too simplistic. Suddenly we're rooting for him like Freddy Krueger to kill all of these bad people. <laughs> but yet he's still going to kill himself, right? I mean, that's what I take. Maybe it's so vague. Again, I see so much waffling here at the end. I'm not sure what the takeaway. Well, let's see what the takeaway is. Jacob, Stuart, are you going thinner? Jacob. Now, you guys kept talking about Tales from the Crypt. Maybe it's on fire with that. To me, this plays again like a bad monkey paw story that you'd see on some bad TV show. I felt like this should have been 24 minutes, so you have time to throw in some commercials, because that's how much story is here. Whatever that book had, whatever appealed to you, Stuart, I don't see it here on the screen. I see a very thin story that really, at 90 minutes, feels like a chore to get through because of the bad acting, the tone isn't right. There's no themes. It's like, hey, what if losing weight was a bad thing? But you actually don't get into anything underneath the surface here. It's I can't think of any reason to see this movie. Just skip it. Not recommend. Stuart. I agree with everything you just said, but it's weird. Oddly enough, I can't get that angry about this. And I don't even think it's all goodwill to the book either. Because like I said, they fucked it up. There's so much opportunity here to make a really good movie. Again, if you'd gotten David Cronenberg, someone that knows body horror, you could have really explored the way we look at ourselves. In all forms of that, physically and in status, I think there's a lot to be said in Thinner, and they didn't get any of that in here. But maybe I've just spent too much time in the arcade. I mean, it could just be that I've seen so many truly wretched movies that when I see just a moderately dissatisfying one, I'm like, eh, okay, that wasn't that bad. But that was my feeling. Knowing how bad it has been to watch many of these Stephen King movies, this is only a vaguely dissatisfying adaptation as opposed to some of the really god-awful Lawnmower Man 2 kind of shit that we've gone through. They didn't get anything right, but they didn't make it so awful that I couldn't swallow it. It is a bad film. And I will give it a not recommend. I was really worried where you were going there. I thought when you said, well, maybe I've been in the arcade too long. I'm like, you've said nothing positive about the oh, film. No. Is it a I great know. Film? I <laughs> thought you were going to recommend it. No, no, it's not. Please. No. I, I, no, no. What I'm saying is it's shocking that it isn't contemptible. It's just dissatisfying. As someone who has not read the source material, it is a perplexing film. Like, why is any of this on the screen? That. I watched this film first, then I reread the book. I always like to do that because if I've read the book once so I can really keep clear what the differences are between them, then rewatch the movie. And when I watched the movie the first time, though, I really was going off emotional response, and I really was finding it to be just abjectly terrible in acting and in pacing. But I really enjoy Montaigne's performance wow. so much. It's probably 10 minutes in this film, if you add it all up. It is a full 40 minutes. He is not on screen for 40 minutes. I refuse to believe that. No, but it, he comes in 40 minutes from the end and takes over. And it becomes Joe Mantegna's film in my mind. I enjoyed that so much that when I turned it off, I was smiling. And I go, huh, 
Is this a recommend? Don't do it. Don't do it. And it's good thing that I watched the movie twice. Because when I watched it again after reading the book, A, I could see so clearly where the book fell apart on its translation to the screen. And B, the first hour is so arduous to get to the little joy Montaigne brings. It's a week not recommend. It's not an abhorrent film. You can watch a lot worse. We have watched a lot worse. Most of the Stephen King retrospective is much worse. Yes, it is better than, I think, 10 elevenths of the corn films. But... It is still going to be a red arrow, as red as the splotch on Tadzu's nose. As for the fourth reviewer, I always try to bring Stephen King's view into it when I can. Mm -hmm. He did rewrite the script. He Mm -hmm. did appear in it. Yeah. So he loved it. You'd think so. But he said that somewhere between the cut he saw in April with the original ending and the cut that hit theaters in October, he said he doesn't know who the editors were. It wasn't Holland. It wasn't anyone with narrative sense. But they turned the movie into a dog. And he was really upset about what they'd done because he'd seen better earlier cuts of the film. I can't imagine with these performances they were that much better because my biggest problem with this is tone and acting. Maybe he just had more screen time. But he said there was a good cut once, and now he also would give it a not recommend. So that's four red arrows. Yeah. But we're back at least. We're back with King, and in a few months, we're not going to do it next week. We will be getting to Skeleton Crew, which is, there have been two movie adaptations of those short stories. The Mist, I think everyone knows that one. And Mercy, which I don't think anyone knows about. But it's real. It's really a movie based on Grandma. Even I haven't heard of it. (laughs) And I'm the Stephen King fanatic. And I had no idea. Oh, Mercy, not Misery. (laughs) Yes, I know. It took me a second there. You're like, everyone knows Misery. She won the Oscar. Yeah, not that one. Yeah, I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, no, nobody getting hits in the bed. Nope. This is something to do with witches. I look forward to it. Skeleton Crew. Man, that was all over my junior high. I couldn't look anywhere without seeing that creepy monkey. But mostly, I'm really excited, Arnie. You, in the next couple weeks, will be able to clear your schedule and start putting out on a more regular basis Stephen King book review. That is correct. I am actively immersing myself in the old ones, revisiting what I wrote so many years ago, and I'm going to be starting off with some short stories. There was a new edition of Night Shift. Mm. That was published, okay. and it had two never-before-collected Stephen King short stories in it, Okay, one of which was Weeds from okay. Creepshow. Sure. So I will be adding those two to my Night Shift review and then getting to Firestarter and beyond. I'm looking forward to it. I have several of those already written. Oh, and of course, the lead story will be going to theaters as well. This April, sometimes remakes are better, or at least we hope so. Pet Cemetery is coming back, and we'll be doing that as... Uh, we won't be doing it the weekend of release, because it's the same weekend as Shazam. We picked Shazam. But the week after Shazam, we'll be getting to Pet Cemetery. No matter how good the movie is, if they don't play the Ramones song, it's not as good as the 80s one. I was, I was just going to say it. They got to have that song. I'm just looking forward to listening to our credits for it again so I can hear the Ramones some more. But for next week, the horror is real. Pika Pika! <laughs> got to catch them all, or at least review them. I don't know what you're talking about. I love it. 
I love everything about Pokemon. I've never seen the show. I've never played the game. I barely know any of the creatures, but I have just decided the only way I can stay afloat from what I'm about to step into is to just embrace it with open arms. I feel like maybe a gypsy whispered Pokemon into your ear, Stuart. <laughs> this is your curse. It's so foreign to me, I have to create... I mean, I guess it was doing all those M. Night Shyamalan movies. That genius taught me that you can just shape reality <laughs> to be whatever you want. I'm just going to take the idea that everything about it is great, and I'll have to break down all the ways that it's great, starting with Pokemon, the first movie, next week. <laughs> so is it so great you're going to watch all 21 animated Pokemon films? I can't wait. <laughs> we're only reviewing the five American yes. theatrical releases. Yeah, we're not going to spend the rest of the year on this. I'm sure there's some people that wish we weren't doing it at all, but unfortunately... I want Artie to do an episode-by-episode breakdown of every TV show. I know. I love epilepsy. I can't wait <laughs> episode. I'm going to sit as close to my TV as possible and see what happens. You should watch the episode where James from Team Rocket has, like, boobs for some reason. It's one of those band episodes. I don't know what... Is that James? I am, you're speaking a foreign <laughs> I language. Know, I don't know anything about it, but I love it. Team Rocket Raccoon. It's all going to make sense next week. I love it. I love it. This sounds great. <laughs> Well, no matter what, what's great is our listeners for being patient and now are back to the books of Stephen King. And if you enjoy our Stephen King reviews, please head to iTunes and leave us a five-star review for Now Playing. It is a great way to help us gain new listeners and to just show us you enjoy what we do. So we'll be back next week. Pika Pika. Until then, (laughs) die clean, listeners. Die clean. man from town. You got no business with us, white man from town. And we got no business with you. Go away. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You like this, don't you, Richie? Like it? Are you kidding? I fucking love it. Hear a full review of the original Stephen King source material at our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com. There, Arnie is reviewing every book and short story by King. I die with it in my mouth. And also, come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Can you come back in another couple of weeks after you lost another 40 or 50 pounds? In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. They say you are demons, and we should kill you! In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and Robocop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Keep it up, I'll take your video card away. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Hey kid, wake up. It's a visit from the money fairy. 
You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What this is really all about is, uh... Is even after I'm done paying your firm a fucking fortune, I'm still gonna owe you. Big time. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Do you take traveler's checks? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You want to see what the white man from town can do when he puts his mind to it? Do you want to see that? Associate produced by Jason. Why wasn't you watching, white man from town? Why wasn't you watching? Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Whatever we did, we don't deserve this. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. What did he say? Foot in mouth disease. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. A man's reasons ought to be his own. Good. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Well, if I were you, friend, I'd get the fuck out of there as soon as I could. I'd lose my number. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You're not actually gonna hurt anybody, No. But Billy, if I'm gonna help you, you don't get to ask that question again. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Justice ain't about bringing back the dead, white man. Justice, it's about justice. You friend the policeman, you friend the judge. They make sure nothing happened to you. They keep you safe. But I make sure something happened to them. That justice, white man, gypsy justice. Book Stephen Bachman and when you read Richard Bachman or read my friends Billy starts suddenly losing weight at an alarming rate I actually typed he starts losing weight at an alarming weight I put a (laughs) fucking misspeak in my notes I I Elmer fudded my notes Finna